And please keep the time. We have everybody. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen from me. Thank you, Nicholas, for putting again a great effort going forward. 2020 is the magic year, I can say, is the industry prepared for this game changer. So I have uh, an expert panel uh, consisting from uh, Dorothea Ioannou on my left, Chief Commercial Officer of the American PNI Club, Frederick Kenny, Director of Legal Affairs and External Relations Division on the, from the IMO, Mark Conil, President of Columbia Ship Management Marlowe, Stephen Cooper, CEO of Fourth Insurance Office, and last, Mr. Hamish Norton, President, Starbuck Carrier Corporation, and also a, a spokesman for Clean Shipping Alliance 2020, correct? Uh, one of, of many, many spokesmen, okay, good. Let me say a few words before I pass the floor to our panelists. As 2020 January 1st approaches and a plethora of new, of new regulation could be enforced for compliance by the shipping industry, challenges seem that they reach a high point. Especially the low sulfur fuel emission of less than 0.5% has created some controversy, both on the technical front and the effect on the, on the environment, as to the most suitable approach to attain the required level of sulfur emissions. Whilst the Ballast Water Management Convention has been in implementation as well as compliance by both the IMO and the U.S. Coast Guard and several ballast water management systems have been approved for installation. Coast Guard just announced that they have uh, system number 16 approved the other day. It seems to me that the low sulfur emission front is not as clear as certain coastal states and the European community have second thought as to the effect of exhaust uh, gas cleaning system, for example, scrubber system, in reducing environmental impact. Of course, there are alternative methods by using low sulfur fuels, and certain sectors in shipping industry, they have also proposed slow steaming to reduce uh, air emission and environmental impact. With our panels, we will try to shed some light on this. And I would like to start from uh, Frederick, uh, representing the IMO. It has been said that uh, year 2020 is the year of regulation and the year of implementation. Several and many, with uh, the low sulfur being uh, the, at the center of it. And every day in trade wins and other uh, papers, shipping papers, there are at least four to five articles, different opinions, what is the best. Now, tell us about all of these regulations. <laughs> well, thank you, Michael, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct that uh, the latter half of 2019 and the year of 2020 really is going to be a momentous year for the industry in terms of compliance and implementation of IMO regulations. And as you alluded to, it's not just uh, the, the sulfur cap. It is uh, the implementation of the Ballast Water Convention, which 
the amendments to the Ballast Water Convention go into force in October of 2019. It's the single window uh, regulations uh, out of the facilitation convention that come into effect this fall. Uh, it is the raft, and I mean a large number, of amendments to the SOLAS Convention, including the Life-Saving uh, Life Appliances Code, uh, the IBC code, the IGF code, many, many others that all come into force on the 1st of January 2020. So it's really going to be incumbent upon the industry to be aware of this very large number of regulations uh, that are coming into force and be ready to implement them. Certainly uh, the committees and the subcommittees at the IMO have been working diligently to help the industry prepare for them. Uh, the Pro Pollution Prevention and Response Subcommittee is actually meeting as we speak. I, I was hoping I could give you some, uh, a few more concrete results, and, and uh, I just looked before I got on to the stage here to see if they had issued their, uh, their draft report. Unfortunately, they haven't yet. Uh, but when you look at, for example, uh, the work that's going on, looking at uh, the guidelines for exhaust uh, gas cleaning systems or scrubbers, uh, if you look at the guidelines for the implementation of 2020, I think there are, being a, there are a lot of tools that are being prepared by the IMO to help the industry implement. Uh, the challenge now is going to be to get all that done in the time available. And I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, good, but um, I just received from uh, the Liberian representative at IMO a very brief uh, summary of on the ongoing meeting, uh, a few points, so if I may share with you. Um, Marpol Annex 6 has been amended to require ships to have a sampling point for in-use fuel oil sampling and one for on-board fuel oil sampling. And is the Annex, uh, the Appendix 6 of Marpol Annex 6 has been amended to include procedures for sampling in-use fuel oils in lab offshore. We have been successful in putting additional pressure on suppliers, providing compliant fuel, including random sampling by port state control authorities. What we are unable to agree is what should the ship do with any excess non-compliant fuel that it has at the end of the voyage after it tried to procure compliant fuel but could not. We propose Liberia means that it consumes the fuel outside 20 nautical, 200 nautical miles from land, but not much support. So this will go to MEPC 74. Regarding scrubber discharge water, it was proposed that additional study be made regarding the effects of wash water to the human health and environment. This is just a little uh, parenthesis of what is going on. Liberia is active participants in uh, the IMO, and we believe that IMO is the proper body uh, for international regulation in shipping versus national or, or local regulation. And because of this, we try to be as active as possible. Now, um, the introduction was good, but uh, we do have regulation like uh, the data collection system, MRV. Any effort from your side to uh, discuss with the uh, European community harmonization of both? Why do we need similar two different approaches on a similar issue? Well, certainly we do um, communicate very closely with the Commission, and I think uh, under the Secretary General's leadership, the relationship between uh, the IMO and the Commission 
uh, has uh, grown considerably. With respect to the comparison between the IMO data collection system and the EU MRV regulations, uh, I don't think there is any movement towards amending the IMO data collection system. However, the EU has proposed some amendments to the MRV to bring it closer to uh, the, uh, the IMO uh, DTS. Does it bring it all the way there? No. Uh, I think we're going to have, this is one of these where we're going to have to watch this space because certainly a dual recording, reporting requirement on ships is not something that anyone wants. And the IMO position has always been that uniform global standards uh, is the proper way to go. So the more we can work to harmonize those regulations and the more that the, the commission regulations can move towards the IMO regulations, the better. And that, that, this, that theory and that concept also applies across the board. You mentioned the, the ballast water regulations of the United States as compared to the IMO ballast water convention. The, the ultimate goal would be to have one set of rules for the industry globally. Thank you. Uh, one, of course, uh, the panelists feel free if you would like to add something to this uh, type of question before I come to you with a direct uh, question. But uh, Frederick, one last thing. Uh, from the IMO perspective on this 2020, will be exhaust gas cleaning system, will be low sulfur fuel. Have you considered slow steaming as an alternative for uh, uh, reducing the environmental impact of shipping? Is there any pref preference from the IMO perspective? Well, I think from the Secretariat's perspective, there's no preference. It's going to be up to the member states. You, know, you mentioned, um, uh, and one thing I would correct is that the, the PPR subcommittee can't approve any amendments to MARPOL. That has to be done by the MEPC. So right. nothing actually has been decided right. yet. But with respect to uh, the guidelines for exhaust, class, exhaust gas cleaning systems, uh, some very interesting studies by some of the member states. I, Germany is one that has a very good study of the content of the wastewater uh, discharges from both open loop and closed loop systems. And I think that is going to lead to uh, additional review of the 2015 guidelines uh, to see where they'll go. I mean, certainly uh, there have been concerns raised that, you know, and you've seen that there are some ports that have now banned the discharge of, of open, loop, uh, uh, open loop discharges uh, in their ports. Uh, again, this goes back to having unified global regulations. Uh, so I think that uh, the subcommittee is asking for more time to study the issue to see where the guidelines should go. Thank you, Frederick. Uh, we, I would like now to move to uh, more uh, core uh, discussion on the uh, exhaust gas cleaning system. What you see, if you wonder what you are seeing or you saw before, uh, what you saw before was a submarine that was built in 1859 by a Spanish uh, uh, in, um, engineer and was the first vessel that uh, it is documented that it, it had a scrubber system on board 
to uh, assist with uh, carbon dioxide. So 1859, from a little research I did, was the year that the scrubber system applied on a, on a shipping uh, vehicle. I, it was the previous picture you saw on the thing. Now, um, I, I, I would like to uh, address both to Hamis and to Mark the uh, following questions. The, the debate on the environmental impact of uh, exhaust gas cleaning system and uh, pros and cons, do we have a clear picture? Uh, either Hamis, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, look, there, there's obviously been a debate about the environmental impacts of, of scrubbers. Um, and that debate has, has been, uh, I think, triggered by having not really enough scientific data to make people as comfortable as they would want to be uh, with the impacts of scrubbers. But, you know, fu fundamentally, scrubbers take pollution that would be going into the air and wash it out of the exhaust gas stream and put those same chemicals into the water where in many cases they are not pollution. So sulfur is a pollutant in the air, it's not a pollutant in the water, uh, which is the primary component. So uh, just yesterday, uh, or I guess uh, in, in one case before yesterday, but earlier this week, there were two studies uh, that were published. One was a study by uh, DNVGL using wash water samples from Carnival Cruise Lines was, I think, the largest wash water sample analysis that had ever been done. Uh, it encompassed 281 wash water samples and concluded that the wash water met all EU and German um, uh, industrial waste stream standards. Uh, furthermore, it met the EU standards for surface waters, meaning lakes, rivers, and so on. And they f further compared it to the World Health Organization standards for drinking water, and the wash water samples from the open loop scrubbers met the World Health Organization standards for drinking water, except, of course, that it was seawater, so it was, it was salty. Um, so what that means is essentially you could pass the entire water supply of the Earth's oceans through an open loop scrubber one time and you could still drink it but for the salt. Um, Japan also came out with a study, a Japanese Ministry of Transport came out with a study that they had done on the effect of running open loop scrubbers in Japanese ports. And uh, the study they did basically was a dynamic computer simulation of the water in Japanese ports over a 10-year period, assuming that every single ship calling in Japan was using an open-loop scrubber and running it in port. And what they concluded was that there was no measurable change in the uh, levels of pollutants in the port waters of Japan after that simulated 10-year period. But there was a major benefit to air quality from the scrubbers. Um, and that was their concluding slide, actually, that, uh, you know, which is better? Uh, and they showed a picture of a ship with 3.5% sulfur fuel in a scrubber and a happy person on board, and a picture of a ship with half percent sulfur fuel and no scrubber 
and a very unhappy person on board breathing in all those PAHs and heavy metals and, and sulfur. So, um, you know, it's understandable that people are concerned, but I think with more data, people will be, first of all, less concerned about the effect on the water and probably more concerned with the benefits of scrubbers on the air quality. Thank you, Hamis. Mark, uh, I know you might be having a little different of uh, view, so. Th thank you, Michael, and uh, thank you to Nicholas for, for having me on, on the panel. The, the, the discussion for today is whether IMO 2020 is a game changer, and uh, I don't actually think it is. Uh, it's certainly an evolution. It's certainly a move in the environmental direction that other industries are having to cope with as well, whether it's uh, for us, whether it's ballast water or whether it's low sulfur fuels. I don't think it's a game changer. We, we've got many, we have many game changers uh, happening to our industry at the moment, but I don't think lower sulfur in uh, fuel is one of them. We are uh, ship managers and we can only advise our clients on what to do. And some of our clients will be going down the scrubber route, some of our clients won't be. Our own advice for what it is worth is wait and see because the, uh, the technical and the environmental landscape is simply too fluid at the moment. There are certainly justifications for scrubbers in certain industries and where you have a vessel in a long-term time charter and you can make the commercial argument uh, without doubt. But the landscape, a bit like the landscape in, in my home country, England, uh, Brexit, is just simply too uncertain at the moment to make any, uh, any plans. From a personal point of view, though, I can see the argument uh, against scrubbers. It's a bit like if we have an analogy of the motor car and lead-free petrol. Can you imagine the motor car industry persuading the environmental lobby at the time lead-free petrol was coming in that it's okay to take the lead out of the petrol that we were using before and either pump it into the air if that were possible or leave it on the walkway as the car drives past? It simply would not uh, pass the environmental sniff test. And my fear is uh, that there is an argument that scrubbers will not, whether they're open loop or closed loop, will not pass the environmental sniff test, not necessarily next year, but in the year that comes, on the years that come thereafter. So that's my uh, personal concern as, as, regards, as regards scrubbers. And I, I did pose the question to the last panel because I think pricing of low sulfur fuel is critical in this debate. The clearest possible way of complying with IMO 2020 is to burn low sulfur fuel. There's no doubt about it. And, and if the, the cost of the low sulfur fuel was at the same level as today's higher sulfur fuel, then of course we'd all go down that, uh, all go down that line and, and burn low sulfur fuel. So uh, I think the producers of fuels will face the same environmental pressures that we're seeing on the televisions at the moment that are compelling actually, and will hopefully, there will be a race to bring the price of low sulfur fuel down, or there is an argument, as I said in my question uh, to the last panel, that they will be seen to be um, potentially profiteering from the situation. And, and let's face it, uh, like many companies uh, today, the producers are servants of the stock markets, 
and the environmental lobby is extremely important in stock price. So I, I personally believe there's a strong argument that the producers will, in the same way that lead-free petrol is now and was pretty much immediately cheaper than uh, the, the leaded petrol or the other fuels available, I think low sulfur fuel will be, become uh, uh, as, as cheap as uh, the, the present sulfur fuels that we're seeing on the market in a very short space of time. Thank you, Mark, uh, for this introduction, but you actually brought uh, the next questions. I mean, if uh, the low sulfur bankering is a preferred method, and in, besides the cost difference that exists today and the drive to uh, make it uh, more compatible with the current uh, cost of the conventional fuels, uh, what about availability of network as it exists or is developed and the other thing that I have been reading, there may be operational issue impacting the engine, the system on board, purifiers, etc., etc. So if you have a comment on that, please uh, offer it. And then Mark, uh, after Mark, I would like Hamis to also give us an, uh, uh, his input on, on the same uh, question. I, I think... Um our mail on the last panel, uh, uh, and it's a, a comment I think that probably applies for other producers, said that there was inverted commas plenty. There would be plenty of low sulfur fuel available to the market. Or, of course, there will be differentiation between uh, different regions of the world as to the, 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 the different chemical components of that low sulfur fuel, but there will be plenty of low sulfur fuel. If there is plenty of low sulfur fuel, and it ticks firmly the environmental box, then why should it be more expensive than the higher sulfur fuel uh, uh, of today? So I, I think there, there will be plenty of fuel. I think the, the challenge will be um, non-low sulfur fuel or, or high sulfur fuel, the availability of high sulfur fuel. That might be a, uh, that might be a challenge as the, the uh, producers switch to low sulfur fuel. What was extremely interesting is something that we've been focusing on was your second question, uh, Michael, which was uh, fuel management on board, because that is going to be uh, a challenge. And that's one of the reasons uh, why we went down uh, the route of our performance optimization control room at Columbia Ship Management, because monitoring fuels and monitoring switchover between vessels of different types of fuels and avoiding compatibility issues is going to be key. And I can see, being an ex-lawyer myself, uh, I can see all the lawyers in the audience rubbing their hands in glee with all the potential claims that will be coming up with the incompatibility of fuels uh, and, and potential vessel breakdown in, in the future. But that's something that, that everyone really has to focus on. I think that was brought out really well in the last panel. I just wanted to actually add on there being from the P&I side of things that that's obviously going to be a big concern um, from the insurance perspective and concentrating on the human element because I think no matter which choice, which no matter which way you go, there's going to be serious growing pains and the, the stress and the emphasis has to be definitely on whatever choice you, you, you go forward with to have a plan but to ensure training and education, and that goes both on the seafarer side, it's going to have a greater burden on them, um, and also on the shore side, and making sure exactly what was mentioned earlier in the earlier panel by ExxonMobil, Mobil, that um, that is going to be key. And, and I have to say, I agree with Mark that there will be uh, ample supplies 
of low sulfur fuel and uh, that there are question marks about the supplies of high sulfur fuel in 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, ev everybody's going to have their own uh, issues going into 2020, and it's not going to be easy for anybody. Um, but, you know, our, our motivation for equipping our fleet with scrubbers was that w once we determined that scrubbers worked and were environmental, you know, for, frankly, in our view, probably the single most environmentally friendly thing you can do with heavy fuel oil, um, we um, chose to hedge our exposure to changing fuel prices by putting the scrubber in. That allows us to burn either sort of fuel. Um, but in, in, in terms of environmental impact of open loop scrubbers, remember that the alternative to burning heavy fuel oil in a scrubber is either burning it in a third world country that uses it for power production, presumably without a scrubber, or refining it. And refining it does not come free. Refining it wastes at least 10% and up to 25% of the fuel that just goes into excess CO2 emissions with no economic productivity associated with those CO2 emissions, except for a small amount of low sulfur fuel that comes out of refining a large amount of high sulfur fuel. Anyway. Thank you. Steve, would you like to add anything? Because I'm going to move on a couple of questions on insurance since uh, Dorothea opened it. On both systems, the ballast management system and the low fuel uh, regulation, is there a, uh, a view both on the Holland machinery and the PNI sector from the insurance, the issues you expect, the cover, to what extent the cover, the crew may be a critical link because the crew will be asked to operate a ballast water management system and we have seen already as a flag issues with water ballast management system on board and what about either scrubber or even uh, low fuel that uh, they might have implication in, uh, in the fuel management, as uh, Mark uh, said. Dorothea and Steve, both. Michael, if I might make reference to your opening remarks, I think you commented on the volume that has been written about this debate. And I think most of what has been written has centered around the economic response to uh, to regulations from an operational standpoint. But I think there is one factor about which there is no argument and debate. The greatest uh, byproduct of regulation will be noncompliance. And with noncompliance, there are associated management liabilities which really have not gotten the attention that we think uh, they do uh, uh, deserve. And we think that it is timely for owners and managers uh, to sit down with, uh, with council, with internal and external risk advisors to review how the re uh, approaching regulation uh, will uh, have interplay and uh, impact their uh, insurance uh, programs and particularly management liability, which has been uh, uh, overlooked. And it's not simply 
a case of seeing whether there is a presence or absence of pollution coverage. It's actually more complex than that. So we think that owners and managers need to consider whether obviously on a, on a primary basis uh, uh, management liability uh, coverage and protections will be present where there is direct and uh, verifiable uh, evidence of, uh, of pollution, but also to see whether insurance will respond to allegations of failure to comply with regulation. And for those uh, owners and managers that, are, uh, that have uh, public uh, equity or debt, whether the coverage would respond if there are allegations of a failure to accurately describe uh, to stakeholders the environmental risks associated with noncompliance and whether the extent and the potential cost uh, will, uh, uh, has been provided to those that are investing uh, in your company. So uh, it is uh, very necessary for owners and managers to learn how their pollution exclusions uh, will apply and how their pollution coverage will apply. And here, the focus needs not to be limits and retentions, but rather wording. It's a time for wording te technicians to look at your coverages to see how the definitions uh, will respond and potentially if they can be enhanced. Unfortunately, I can't give you any quick answers because the lack of uniformity in coverages and exclusions is such that in effect, most policies uh, in their final and complete form uh, are bespoke and need to be looked at uh, individually. But uh, again, uh, we think that uh, this has been overlooked and it does des uh, deserve uh, certainly uh, uh, more focus. Yeah, I would um, take it uh, back into the, the, um, the ship insurance, especially related to P&I, which is where I am, I guess, have my expertise. And I would, I would like to emphasize here that as far as P&I clubs are concerned, um, bunker disputes and casualties resulting from bunker problems are things that the clubs have been handling since the beginning of time. So this doesn't change that. IMO 2020 does not change that from a P&I club perspective. Um, what we've seen historically, though, is that these types of claims have, have not, have, it's the, the level and the significance of these types of liabilities in terms of P&I, third party, um, have always been historically low. What we think is going to happen, though, is because, like I said before, there are going to be growing pains, and there's going to be a lot of emphasis on um, the implementation plan and the training and the education. Um, we think that the potential for that scale uh, will become magnified. So we think that what we're going to definitely see is an increase on the legal disputes um, related to a lot of aspects in terms of responsibility for not compliance as compliance, but in the details in terms of 
responsibility for supplying. It's going to depend on the type of contract you have. There's going to be more disputes related to bunker suppliers. You're going to have to start planning from now and hire a lawyer, as Mark was referring to before, to review all of your contracts. I know that there are recommended uh, contract clauses out there, but they don't meet every single need. So you need to do a risk assessment. And this is the way the P&I clubs approach every type of liability, especially when most of the types of liabilities are, are basically influenced by the human element. You have to do a risk assessment. Um, in this particular situation, in this particular um, instance, actually the IMO even has issued a template um, that will provide a guideline for implementation, which in effect is a risk assessment. But you have to make sure that you are definitely putting in all the factors that relate to your specific operation, your specific type of trade, um, your specific requirements. So. For the P&I clubs, I mean, we have to remember that I know that there's a lot of talk out there, there are a lot of articles out there about how unseaworthiness, this is going to create a big issue for unseaworthiness. Well, unseaworthiness has always been an issue. It's always going to be an, an issue. From the P&I perspective, we have to remember that unseaworthiness simply by itself as a state doesn't take you out of cover. Um, it also doesn't even always deprive you of your defenses under statute. So it's going to depend on the nature and the timing and how the unseaworthiness um, arises. So we're going to be looking at everything on a case-by-case -case basis. So like, for example, if you have um, uh, casualties that may be attributable to mistakes, real mistakes, that's different than a casualty that results from having done nothing to prepare yourself. So the one doesn't necessarily take you out of cover. The other one probably will. Then again, the P&I clubs also have a catch-all and a kind of a savior clause where basically the ship owners have the right to judge their peers and there's an omnibus clause for claims and you would always have the right if the managers or if the standard cover is not available to take it to your peers, make your case and let them decide. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothea. As we are about to uh, conclude this uh, session, I would like just a very brief uh, statement from everyone. Uh, usually I try to, to give a, a general question. Why the industries, being air, sea, uh, land, put together a holistic approach to reducing and saving the environment? Like, uh, as Mark mentioned, when we have the change from leaded to unleaded, gas for the cars that, of course, had an impact positive. Aircraft uh, industry is having. Now we have all of this debate on the uh, pollution emissions from shipping industry, etc. But why all of these bodies? The world. world is nothing. It's just uh, to put together a holistic approach. Identify all the sources of pollution in air, in sea, and on land, and try to offer some type of long term, not the 2050, which is the zero, and then we need to see if LNGs or other fuels or electric ships or electric cars or electric airplanes or whatever will come. But I think this is the way to go. I mean, so let's start from uh, well, very brief. I think in a perfect world, that is the way to go. I think you're getting to, um, you're getting, you're asking a question that relates more to human nature. Um, than to anything else. I mean, I don't, I mean, coming from the United States, if you look at regulation there, there's lots of aspects of, 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 
of, of regulation that differ from state to state, and we're in, all in the same country. So I think it's really, unfortunately, an issue of just human nature. I think that everybody wants to do that, but everybody thinks that their approach is the best approach. <laughs> Fred. Well, I, you, could, you can look at this on a macro level or a micro level. And I, at, on, the, on the micro level, for example, if you look at the, uh, the, the global MTCC network project that is funded by the EU and being implemented by the IMO, which is a series of, of centers that have been uh, constructed or initiated around the world, uh, for example, the, the MTCC in the Pacific is doing an amazing project um, where they're reducing not just air emissions from ships but through the whole shipport interface, and you're seeing uh, less use of vehicles by more efficient use of ships by unloading procedures, that sort of thing. So you're getting spillover there that's, that actually has measurable results. Uh, on the, the macro level, uh, when you look at the, the UNFCCC, the Framework Convention, uh, the Paris Agreement, uh, it, it doesn't have a lot to commend coordination between the, the different transport sectors. Uh, what ICAO is doing is, is operating relatively independently from what IMO is doing, and then you don't really have any international UN regulatory bodies for, for rail and road. Uh, but, you know, that's something certainly that needs to be looked at in the future. Thank you. Mark? <laughs> Michael, I didn't really understand the question because I was thinking how fast I'm going to form a queue next to Stephen here to, to sort out all our uh, in, insurances, and I want to make sure I'm the first one in that queue. Uh, look, I, I think, um, uh, like many other industries, we're, we're all going down the, the environmental uh, path and uh, not slower or, or, or faster than any other industry. I think what we will face in the near future is a choice. Uh, we will have choices of, of fuels, be they high sulfur, low sulfur, LNG, electric. It, it's a very exciting future, and, and you've got to factor that into your plans. And I'm, I'm sure those operators who have decided on the scrubber route have decided it for absolutely the right reasons and for the right environmental reasons that exist uh, uh, at the moment and have factored in all the, uh, the, the possible uh, variables. And those that haven't, uh, adopting a wait-and-see approach that, 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 that we're um, putting forward as a uh, as a management company. So I think the industry, we, we do tend to beat ourselves up a little bit. There are a lot of changes happening. I think we're reacting very well to them uh, and, and competently to them uh, in the best way that we see for our particular companies and our particular sectors. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I've seen estimates of uh, non-compliance ranging anywhere from 10 uh, to 40%, and uh, which means that uh, uh, managements uh, will have vulnerability in many of those non-compliant uh, uh, situations. So uh, it's not just about uh, handling fines uh, that may be assessed. It's talking about being in a position to defend your owners and managers and shareholders against allegations that their, their failure to comply has led to low fishing yields or low birth rates in some part of the uh, world and being able to mount a, uh, a credible uh, defense. So I, I'm going to be very interested to see uh, how accurate those predictions concerning noncompliance are. And I want to say that Starbulk has a notably fierce chief compliance officer, and we will comply. Um, 
but you know, in, in terms of the environmental uh, impact of shipping, you know, we the the the, the peak peak uh, of the environmentally friendly shipping business were the clipper ships, and then we went over to coal-powered steamships, which were a big step down, and then oil-powered steamships, which were a little step up, and then oil-powered diesel ships, which were another little step up, and I think pretty soon we're back to wind power. And uh, I think that's actually the inevitable direction of the, of the business, but um, uh, maybe that's a good thing. And with this optimistic uh, note from <laughs> Hamis, uh, if there is any question from the audience, uh, maybe we have one. Oh, we have exceeded the time. Nicholas, thank you for allowing uh, the time exceedance. Thank you for your attention.